context, the N4 occurs after the N2, but before the P3, and increases in magnitude as a function of the difficulty of integrating the word with the context in which it appears. The amygdala and hippocampus are also directly responsible for the production of this waveform, and, therefore, for contextual synthesis, which is a vital aspect of the derivation of meaning, which is significance for behavior, given the desire to attain a particular goal. The processes that reveal themselves behaviorally in the orienting complex and electrophysiologically in the N2-N4-P3 waveform appear to play a central part in the manifold processes we experience and understand as consciousness. Another psychophysiologist, Arnie Ullman, has posited that orienting initiates a sequence of controlled processing, which is difficult, slow, accompanied by awareness, sequential and generative, and which is referred to as exploratory behavior in this document. Contrasted with automatic processing, which is habitual, unconscious, and immediate, and which occurs in explored territory. The orienting complex is apparently manifested only when a given experimental subject becomes aware of some relationship between sensory input and motor action. Likewise, the N2P3 waveform appears only when the experimental stimulus utilized has captured the subject's attention and reached his or her awareness. Consciousness, affiliated tightly with orienting for the purposes of the present argument, therefore appears as a phenomenon critically involved in and vital to the evaluation of novelty, appears vital to placement of the unpredictable into a defined and determinate context as a consequence of behavioral modification undertaken in the territory of the unknown. This means that consciousness plays a centrally important role in the generation of the predictable and comprehended world from the domain of the unexpected. Such response, placement, and generation remains forever mediated by the twin forces of hope, curiosity, and anxiety, forces produced, non-coincidentally, by the same structures that govern reflexive orientation and exploratory motor output. The constant and universal presence of the incomprehensible in the world has elicited adaptive response from us and from all other creatures with highly developed nervous systems. We have evolved to operate successfully in a world eternally composed of the predictable in paradoxical juxtaposition with the unpredictable. The combination of what we have explored and what we have still to evaluate actually comprises our environment, insofar as its nature can be broadly specified, and it is to that environment that our physiological structure has become matched. One set of the systems that comprise our brain and mind governs activity when we are guided by our plans, when we are in the domain of the known. Another appears to operate when we face something unexpected, when we have entered the realm of the unknown. The limbic unit generates the orienting reflex, among its other tasks. It is the orienting reflex which manifests itself in emotion, thought, and behavior that is at the core of the fundamental human response to the novel or unknown. This reflex takes a biologically determined course, ancient in nature, 
primordial as hunger or thirst, basic as sexuality, extant similarly in the animal kingdom, far down the chain of organic being. The orienting reflex is the general instinctual reaction to the category of all occurrences which have not yet been categorized, is response to the unexpected, novel, or unknown per se, and not to any discriminated aspect of experience, any specifically definable situation or thing. The orienting reflex is at the core of the process that generates conditional knowledge of sensory phenomena and motivational relevance or valence. Such knowledge is most fundamentally how to behave and what to expect as a consequence in a particular situation defined by culturally modified external environmental circumstance and equally modified internal motivational state. It is also information about what is, from the objective perspective, is the record of that sensory experience occurring in the course of ongoing behavior. The orienting reflex substitutes for particular learned responses when the incomprehensible suddenly makes its appearance. The occurrence of the unpredictable, the unknown, the source of fear and hope, creates a seizure of ongoing specifically goal-directed behavior. Emergence of the unexpected constitutes evidence for the incomplete nature of the story currently guiding such behavior comprises evidence for error at the level of working description of current state, representation of desired future state, or conception of the means to transform the former into the latter. Appearance of the unknown motivates curious, hopeful, exploratory behavior, regulated by fear, as means to update the memory-predicated working model of reality, to update the known, so to speak, which is defined or familiar territory. The simultaneous production of two antithetical emotional states, such as hope and fear, means conflict, and the unexpected produces intrapsychic conflict like nothing else. The magnitude and potential intensity of this conflict cannot be appreciated under normal circumstances, because under normal circumstances, in defined territory, things are going according to plan. It is only when our goals have been destroyed that the true significance of the decontextualized object or experience is revealed, and such revelation makes itself known first in the form of fear. We are protected from such conflict, from subjugation to instinctive terror, by the historical compilation of adaptive information generated in the course of previous novelty-driven exploration. We are protected from unpredictability by our culturally determined beliefs, by the stories we share. These stories tell us how to presume and how to act to maintain the determinant, shared, and restricted values that compose our familiar worlds. The orienting reflex, the involuntary gravitation of attention to novelty, lays the groundwork for the emergence of voluntarily controlled exploratory behavior. Exploratory behavior allows for classification of the general and a priori motivationally significant unexpected into specified and determinate domains of motivational relevance. 
In the case of something with actual post-investigation significance, relevance means context-specific punishment or satisfaction, or their putatively second-order equivalence, threat or promise. A something threatening implies punishment. A something promising implies satisfaction. This is categorization, it should be noted, in accordance with implication for motor output or behavior rather than with regard to sensory or formalized objective property. We have generally presumed that the purpose of exploration is production of a picture of the objective qualities of the territory explored. This is evidently, but only partially, true. However, the reasons we produce such pictures, are motivated to produce such pictures, are not usually given sufficient consideration. Every explorable subterritory, so to speak, has its sensory aspect, but it is the emotional or motivational relevance of the new domain that is truly important. We need to know only that something is hard and glowing red as a means of keeping track of the fact that it is hot and therefore dangerous, that it is punishing if contacted. We need to know the feel and look of objects so that we can keep track of what can be eaten and what might eat us. When we explore a new domain, we are mapping the motivational or affective significance of the things or situations that are characteristic of our goal-directed interactions within that domain, and we use the sensory information we encounter to identify what is important. It is the determination of specific meaning or emotional significance in previously unexplored territory, not identification of the objective features, that allows us to inhibit the novelty-induced terror and curiosity emergence of that territory otherwise automatically elicits. We feel comfortable somewhere new once we have discovered that nothing exists there that will threaten or hurt us. More particularly, when we have adjusted our behavior and schemas of representation so that nothing there is likely to or able to threaten or hurt us. The consequence of exploration that allows for emotional regulation, that generates security, essentially, is not objective description, as the scientist might have it, but categorization of the implications of an unexpected occurrence for specification of means and ends. Such categorization is what an object is from the perspective of archaic affect and subjective experience. The orienting reflex and the exploratory behavior following its manifestation also allows for the differentiation of the unknown into the familiar categories of objective reality. However, this ability is a late development, emerging only 400 years ago, and cannot be considered basic to thinking. Specification of the collectively apprehensible sensory qualities of something, generally considered in the modern world as the essential aspect of the description of reality, merely serves as an aid to the more fundamental process of evaluation, determining the precise nature of relevant or potentially relevant phenomena. When things are going according to plan, that is, when our actions fulfill our desires, we feel secure, 
even happy. When nothing is going wrong, the cortical systems expressly responsible for the organization and implementation of goal-directed behavior remain firmly in control. When cortically generated plans and fantasies go up in smoke, however, this control vanishes. The comparatively ancient limbic, hippocampal, and amygdalic systems leap into action, modifying affect, interpretation, and behavior. The hippocampus appears particularly specialized for comparing the interpreted reality of the present, as it manifests itself in the subjective sphere, with the fantasies of the ideal future constructed by the motor unit, acting, in turn, as the higher-order mediator, the king, so to speak, of all the specialized subsystems that compose the more fundamental or primary components of the brain. These desire-driven fantasies might be regarded as motivated hypotheses about the relative likelihood of events produced in the course of ongoing goal-directed activity. What you expect to happen, really, what you want to happen, at least in most situations, is a model you generate using what you already know in combination with what you are learning while you act. The hippocampal comparator constantly and unconsciously checks what is actually happening against what is supposed to happen. This means that the comparator contrasts the unbearable present, insofar as it is comprehended, because it is a model too, against the ideal future as it is imagined, means that it compares the interpreted outcome of active behavior with an image of the intended consequences of that behavior. Past experience, skill, and representation of the outcome of skill, or memory as it is applied, governs behavior until error is committed. When something occurs that is not intended, when the actual outcome, as interpreted, does not match the desired outcome, as posited, the hippocampus shifts mode and prepares to update cortical memory storage. Behavioral control shifts from the cortex to the limbic system, apparently to the amygdala, which governs the provisional determination of the affective significance of unpredictable events and has powerful output to centers of motor control. This shift of control allows the activation of structures governing orienting, heightened intensity of sensory processing, and exploration. The higher cortex controls behavior until the unknown emerges, until it makes a mistake in judgment, until memory no longer serves, until the activity it governs produces a mismatch between what is desired and what actually occurs. When such a mismatch occurs, appropriate affect, fear, and curiosity emerges. But how can situation-relevant emotion attach itself to what has by definition not yet been encountered? Traditionally, significance is attached to previously irrelevant things or situations as a consequence of learning, which is to say that things mean nothing until their meaning is learned. No learning has taken place, however, in the face of the unknown, yet emotion reveals itself in the presence of error. It appears, therefore, that the kind of emotion that the unpredictable arouses 
is not learned. Which is to say that the novel or unexpected comes preloaded with affect. Things are not irrelevant as a matter of course. They are rendered irrelevant as a consequence of successful exploratory behavior. When they are first encountered, however, they are meaningful. It is the amygdala at bottom that appears responsible for the disinhibited generation of this a priori meaning, terror and curiosity. The amygdala appears to automatically respond to all things or situations, unless told not to. It is told not to is functionally inhibited when ongoing goal-directed behaviors produce the desired, intended results. When an error occurs, however, indicating that current memory-guided motivated plans and goals are insufficient, the amygdala is released from inhibition and labels the unpredictable occurrence with meaning. Anything unknown is dangerous and promising simultaneously, evokes anxiety, curiosity, excitement, and hope automatically, and prior to what we would normally regard as exploration or as more context-specific classification. The operations of the amygdala are responsible for ensuring that the unknown is regarded with respect as the default decision. The amygdala says, in effect, if you don't know what it signifies, you'd better pay attention to it. Attention constitutes the initial stage of exploratory behavior motivated by amygdalic operation, composed of the interplay between anxiety, which impels caution in the face of novelty threat, and hope, which compels approach to novelty promise. Caution-regulated approach allows for the update of memory in the form of skill and representation. Exploration-updated memory inhibits the production of a priori affect. On familiar ground, in explored territory, we feel no fear and comparatively little curiosity. The desired output of behavior, what should be, is initially posited. If the current strategy fails, the approach and exploration system is activated, although it remains under the governance of anxiety. The approach system, and its equivalent in abstraction, generates, number one, alternative sequences of behavior whose goal is the production of a solution to the present dilemma. Number two, alternative conceptualizations of the desired goal. Or, number three, reevaluation of the motivational significance of the current state. This means, one, that a new strategy for attaining the desired goal might be invented, or, two, that a replacement goal serving the same function might be chosen, or, three, that the behavioral strategy might be abandoned due to the cost of its implementation. In the latter case, the whole notion of what constitutes reality, at least with regard to the story or frame of reference currently in use, might have to be reconstructed. This most troublesome state of affairs is schematically presented in its successful form in Figure 9, 
the regeneration of stability from the domain of chaos. Exploratory activity culminates normally in restriction, expansion, or transformation of the behavioral repertoire. In exceptional, non-normal circumstances, that is, when a major error has been committed, such activity culminates in revolution, in modification of the entire story guiding affective evaluation and behavioral programming. Such revolutionary modification means update of modeled reality, past, present, and future, through incorporation of information generated during exploratory behavior. Successful exploration transforms the unknown into the expected, desired, and predictable, establishes appropriate behavioral measures and expectations of those measures for next contact. Unsuccessful exploration by contrast, avoidance or escape, leaves the novel object firmly entrenched in its initial, natural, anxiety-provoking category. This observation sets the stage for a fundamental realization. Human beings do not learn to fear new objects or situations, or even really learn to fear something that previously appeared safe when it manifests a dangerous property. Fear is the a priori position, the natural response to everything for which no structure of behavioral adaptation has been designed and inculcated. Fear is the innate reaction to everything that has not been rendered predictable as a consequence of successful creative exploratory behavior undertaken in its presence at some time in the past. Joseph Ledoux states, it is well established that emotionally neutral stimuli can acquire the capacity to evoke striking emotional reaction following temporal pairing with an aversive event. Conditioning does not create new emotional responses, but instead simply allows new stimuli to serve as triggers capable of activating existing, often hardwired, species-specific emotional reactions. In the rat, for example, a pure tone previously paired with foot shock evokes a conditioned fear reaction consisting of freezing behavior accompanied by a host of autonomic adjustments, including increases in arterial pressure and heart rate. Similar responses are expressed when laboratory rats are exposed to a cat for the first time but following amygdala lesions, such responses are no longer present, suggesting that the responses are genetically specified, since they appear when the rat sees a cat, a natural predator, for the first time, and involve the amygdala. The fact that electrical stimulation of the amygdala is capable of eliciting the similar response patterns further supports the notion that the responses are hardwired. Fear is not conditioned. Security is unlearned in the presence of particular things or contexts as a consequence of violation of explicit or implicit presupposition. Classical behavioral psychology is wrong in the same manner our folk presumptions are wrong. Fear is not secondary, not learned. Security is secondary, learned.
Everything not explored is tainted a priori with apprehension. Anything or situation that undermines the foundations of the familiar and secure is therefore to be feared. It is difficult for us to formulate a clear picture of the subjective effects of the systems that dominate our initial response to the truly unpredictable, because we strive with all our might to ensure that everything around us remains normal. Under normal conditions, therefore, these primordial systems never operate with their full force. It might be said, with a certain amount of justification, that we devote our entire lives to making sure that we never have to face anything unknown in the revolutionary sense, at least not accidentally. Our success in doing so deludes us about the true nature, power, and intensity of our potential emotional responses. As civilized people, we are secure. We can predict the behaviors of others that is, if they share our stories. Furthermore, we can control our environments well enough to ensure that our subjection to threat and punishment remains at a minimum. It is the cumulative consequence of our adaptive struggle, our cultures, which enable this prediction and control. The existence of our cultures, however, blinds us to the nature of our true emotional natures, at least to the range of that nature, and to the consequences of its emergence. Experimental examinations of the orienting reflex have not shed much light on our true potential for emotional response in the past, because they generally took place under exceptionally controlled circumstances. Subjects evaluated for their responses to novelty are generally presented with stimuli that are novel only in the most normal of manners. A tone, for example, which differs unpredictably from another tone, or which appears at a relatively unpredictable time, is still a tone. Something experienced a thousand times before, and something experienced in a lab, in a hospital or university, under the jurisdiction of trustworthy personnel devoted to minimizing the anxiety-provoking nature of the experimental procedure. The controlled circumstances of the experiment, which are, in fact, the implicit and therefore invisible theoretical presumptions of the experiment have led us to minimize the importance of the orienting reflex and to misunderstand the nature of its disappearance. Orienting signifies attention, not terror, in the standard lab situation, and its gradual elimination with repeated stimulus presentation is regarded as habituation, as something boring, akin to automatic acclimation, adjustment, or desensitization. Habituation is not a passive process, however, at least at higher cortical levels of processing. It just looks passive when observed under relatively trivial circumstances. It is, in reality, always the consequence of active exploration and subsequent modification of behavior or interpretive schema. The relatively novel target laboratory tone, for example, is investigated for its underlying structure by the cortical systems involved in audition. These systems actively analyze the component elements of every sound. The subject is led to expect or predict one sort of sound and gets another. 
The unexpected other has indeterminate significance in that particular context and is therefore regarded as comparatively meaningful, threatening, and promising. The unexpected tone is presented repeatedly. The exploratory subject notes that the repetitions signify nothing in the context that defines the experimental situation. Nothing punishing, satisfying, threatening, or promising, and ceases to react. He is not merely habituated to the stimuli. He has mapped its context-dependent significance, which is zero. This process appears trivial because the experimental situation makes it so. In real life, it is anything but boring. Classical work conducted on animal emotion and motivation has taken place under circumstances reminiscent of the artificially constrained situations that define most work on human orienting. Animals, usually rats, are trained to be afraid or to inhibit their behavior in the presence of a neutral stimulus paired repeatedly with an unconditioned punishment a stimulus whose motivational valence is negative in the supposed absence of learning, or at least in the absence of interpretation. The rat is placed in the experimental environment and is allowed to familiarize himself with his surroundings. The neutral stimulus might be a light, the unconditioned stimulus an electric shock. The light goes on. The floor of the rat's cage is briefly electrified. This sequence occurs repeatedly. Soon, the rat freezes as soon as the light appears. He has developed a conditioned response, manifesting behavioral inhibition and fear, theoretically, to something that was previously neutral. Procedures of this sort effectively produce fear. The implicit contextual constraints or axioms of these procedures, however, lead researchers to draw odd conclusions about the nature of the acquisition of fear. Such experiments first imply that fear in a given situation is necessarily something learned. Second, they imply that fear exists as a consequence of exposure to punishment and only because of that exposure. The problem with this interpretation is that the rat was inevitably afraid as soon as he was placed in the new experimental environment, even though nothing terrible had yet happened there. After he is allowed to explore, he calms down. It is only then that he is regarded as normal. The experimenter then jars the rat out of his acquired normalcy by presenting him with something unexpected and painful, the unconditioned stimulus in conjunction with the neutral stimulus. He then learns to be afraid. Really, what has happened is that the unexpected occurrence forces the rat to reattain the state he was in, or that same state in an exaggerated manner, when he first entered the cage. The fact of the electric shock, in conjunction with the light, indicates to the rat, reminds the rat, that he is once again in unexplored territory. His fear in unexplored territory is just as normal as his complacency in environments that he has mapped and that hold no danger. We regard the calm rat as the real rat because we project our misinterpretations of our own habitual nature onto our experimental animals.
It is, as Donald O. Hebb states, the urbanity characterizing ourselves, the civilized, amiable, and admirable part of mankind, well brought up and not constantly in a state of fear, depends as much on our successfully avoiding disturbing stimulation as on a lowered sensitivity to fear-producing stimuli. The capacity for emotional breakdown may well be self-concealing, leading animals and human beings to find or create an environment in which the stimuli to excessive emotional response are at a minimum. So effective is our society in this regard that its members, especially the well-to-do and educated ones, may not even guess at some of their own potentialities. One usually thinks of education in the broad sense, as producing a resourceful, emotionally stable adult, without respect to the environment in which these traits are to appear. To some extent, this may be true, but education can be seen as being also the means of establishing a protective social environment in which emotional stability is possible. Perhaps it strengthens the individual against unreasonable fears and rages, but it certainly produces a uniformity of appearance and behavior which reduces the frequency with which the individual member of the society encounters the causes of such emotion. On this view, the susceptibility to emotional disturbance may not be decreased. It may, in fact, be increased. The protective cocoon of uniformity in personal appearance, manners, and social activity generally will make small deviations from custom appear increasingly strange and thus, if the general thesis is sound, increasingly intolerable. The inevitable small deviations from custom will bulk increasingly large, and the members of the society, finding themselves tolerating trivial deviations well, will continue to think of themselves as socially adaptable. Our emotional regulation depends as much or more on the stability and predictability of the social environment, on the maintenance of our cultures, as on interior processes classically related to the strength of the ego or the personality. Social order is a necessary precondition for psychological stability. It is primarily our companions and their actions or inactions that stabilize or destabilize our emotions. A rat, a person, is a complacent creature in explored territory. When in unexplored territory, however, it is anything but calm. A rat moved from its home cage to a new and unknown environment, a new cage, for example, will first freeze, even though it has never been punished in a new situation. If nothing terrible happens to it, nothing punishing, threatening, or additionally unpredictable, it will begin to sniff, to look around, to move its head, to gather new information about the intrinsically frightening place it now inhabits. Gradually, it starts to move about. It will explore the whole cage with increasing confidence. It is mapping the new environment for affective valence. It wants to find out. Is there anything here that will kill me? Anything here I can eat? Anyone else here? Someone hostile or friendly? A potential mate? 
The rat is interested in determining whether the new place contains anything of determinate interest to a rat, and it explores to the best of its capacity to make that judgment. It is not primarily interested in the objective nature of the new circumstances. A rat cannot actually determine what is objective and what is merely personal opinion, nor does it care. It just wants to know what it should do. What happens if an animal encounters something truly unexpected, something that should just not be according to its current frame of reference or system of belief? The answer to this question sheds substantial light on the nature of the orienting reflex in its full manifestation. Modern experimental psychologists have begun to examine the response of animals to natural sources of mystery and threat. They allow the animals to set up their own environments, realistic environments, and then expose them to the kinds of surprising circumstances they might encounter in real life. The appearance of a predator in previously safe space, space previously explored, that is, and mapped as useful or irrelevant, constitutes one type of realistic surprise. Blanchard and colleagues describe the naturalistic behavior of rats under such conditions. When a cat is presented to established mixed-sex groups of laboratory rats living in a visible burrow system, the behaviors of the subjects change dramatically, in many cases, for 24 hours or more. The initial active defensive behavior, flight to the tunnel chamber system, is followed by a period of immobility, during which the rats make 22 kilohertz ultrasonic vocalizations, which apparently serve as alarm cries at a high rate. As freezing breaks up, Proximic avoidance of the open area gradually gives way to a pattern of risk assessment of the area where the cat was encountered. Subjects poke their heads out of the tunnel openings to scan the open area where the cat was presented for minutes or hours before emerging. And when they do emerge, their locomotory patterns are characterized by behaviors that theoretically reduce their visibility and vulnerability to predators, and by very short corner runs into and out of the open area. These risk assessment activities appear to involve active gathering of information about the possible danger source, providing a basis for a gradual return to non-defensive behaviors. Active risk assessment is not seen during early post-cat exposure, when freezing and avoidance of the open area are the dominant behaviors, but rises to a peak about 7 to 10 hours later, and then gradually declines. Non-defensive behaviors, such as eating, drinking, and sexual and aggressive activity, tend to be reduced over the same period. The unexpected appearance of a predator where nothing but defined territory previously existed, terrifies the rats. Badly enough that they scream about it persistently for a long period of time. Once this initial terror abates, which occurs only if nothing else horrible or punishing happens, curiosity is disinhibited and the rats return to the scene of the crime. 
the space re-novelized by the fact of the cat has to be transformed once again into explored territory as a consequence of active modification of behavior and representational schema, not by passive desensitization to the unexpected. The rats run across the territory contaminated by the presence of the cat to find out if anything dangerous to running rats still lurks there. If the answer is no, then the space is defined once again as home territory, which is that place where commonplace behaviors produce desired ends. The rats transform the dangerous unknown into familiar territory as a consequence of voluntary exploration. In the absence of such exploration, terror reigns unchecked. It is just as illuminating to consider the responses of rats to their kin who constitute explored territory, in contrast to their attitude towards strangers whose behavior is not predictable. Rats are highly social animals, perfectly capable of living with their familiar compatriots in peace. They do not like members of other kin groups, however. They will hunt them down and kill them. Accidental or purposeful intruders are dealt with in the same manner. Rats identify one another by smell. If an experimenter removes a well-loved rat from its familial surroundings, scrubs it down, provides it with a new odor, and returns it to its peers, it will be promptly dispatched by those who once loved it. The new rat constitutes unexplored territory. His presence is regarded as a threat, not unreasonably, to everything currently secure. Chimpanzees, perfectly capable of killing foreign devils, even those who were once familiar, act in much the same manner. Explored Territory Phenomenology and Neuropsychology When we explore, we transform the indeterminate status and meaning of the unknown thing that we are exploring into something determinate, in the worst case, rendering it non-threatening, non-punishing, in the best, manipulating and or categorizing it so that it is useful. Animals perform this transformation in the course of actual action, which is to say that they construct their worlds by shifting their positions and changing their actions in the face of the unknown and by mapping the consequences of those shifts and changes in terms of their affective or motivational valence. When an animal encounters an unexpected situation, such as a new object placed in its cage, it first freezes, watching the object. If nothing terrible happens while it is immobile, it moves, slowly and at a distance, monitoring the thing for its reactions to these cautious exploratory activities. Perhaps the animal sniffs at the thing or scratches at it, trying to determine what it might be good or bad for. It maps the utility and valence of the object, conceived in relationship to its ongoing activity, and perhaps to possible patterns of activity in the future. The animal builds its world of significances from the information generated in the course of, as a consequence of, ongoing exploratory behavior. The application of experimental search programs, drawn primarily from the reservoir of learned, 
imitated an instinctual behavior or manifested as trial and error involves behavioral alteration, exploration, play, and subsequent transformation of sensory and affective input. When an animal actively explores something new, it changes the sensory quality and motivational significance of that aspect of its experience as a consequence of its exploratory strategy. This means that the animal exhibits a variety of behaviors in a given mysterious situation and monitors the results. It is the organized interpretation of these results and the behaviors that produce them that constitute the world, past, present, and future of the animal, in conjunction with the unknown, of course, which constantly supersedes the capacity for representation. It is not too much to say that the animal elicits the properties of the object, sensory and affective, or even brings them into being through its capacity for creative investigation. Animals that are relatively simple, compared, say, to higher-order primates, including man, are limited in the behaviors they manifest by the structure of their physiology. A rat cannot pick anything up, for example, to examine it in detail, and does not, in addition, have the visual capacity to focus intensely on the kinds of tiny features we can perceive. Higher-order non-human primates have a more developed grip, however, which enables more detailed exploration, and, in addition, have a relatively sophisticated prefrontal cortex. This means that such primates can evoke more features from the world, directly, and that they are increasingly capable of modeling and acting. The prefrontal cortex is the newest part of the motor unit and grew out of the direct motor control centers in the course of cortical evolution. More sophistication in development of the prefrontal centers means, in part, heightened capacity for abstract exploration, which means investigation in the absence of actual movement, which means the capacity to learn from the observation of others and through consideration of potential actions before they emerge in behavior. This means increasing capability for thought, considered as abstracted action and representation. Action and thought produce phenomena. Novel acts and thoughts necessarily produce new phenomena. Creative exploration, concrete and abstract, is therefore linked in a direct sense to being. Increased capacity for exploration means existence in a qualitatively different, even new, world. This entire argument implies, of course, that more complex and behaviorally flexible animals inhabit, construct, if you will, a more complex universe. Humans possess cortical development, prefrontal and otherwise, that is unique in its great mass and, more importantly, in its structure. Various indices of development have been used to signify the nature of the relationship between the brain and intelligence. Sheer mass is one measure. Degree of surface convolution, another. The former measure is contaminated by size of animal. Larger animals tend to have more absolutely massive brains. This does not necessarily make them smarter. Brain mass, corrected for body size, constitutes the encephalization quotient, a common rough measure of animal intelligence.
Degree of surface convolution constitutes an additionally useful measure. The gray matter of the brain, which theoretically does much of the work associated with intelligence, occupies the brain's surface, which has been dramatically increased in area by folding. Some representatives of the cetacean family, dolphins and whales, have encephalization quotients similar to and brain surfaces more convoluted than man's, although the thickness of the cetacean neocortex is about half that of the human. Consideration of this high level of nervous development has led to speculation about the potential superhuman range of cetacean ability. However, it is structure and organization of cortex, not simply mass, or even relative mass or surface area, that most clearly defines the nature and reach of a species' experience and competence. More particularly, it is embodiment of the brain that matters. Brain structure necessarily reflects embodiment, despite the archaic presumption of the independence of spirit and matter, or soul and body, or mind and body, because the body is, in a primary sense, the environment to which the brain has adapted. The body is specifically represented in the neocortex. This representation is often given schematic form as the homunculus, or little man. The homunculus was discovered by Wilder Penfield, who mapped the surface of the cortices of his neurosurgical patients by stimulating them electrically, painstakingly, point after point. He did this to find out what different sections of the brain were doing, so that he could do the least damage possible when attempting to surgically treat epilepsy or cancer or other forms of brain abnormality. He would probe the surface of the brain of one of his awake patients with an electrode. Patients undergoing neurosurgery are frequently awake as the brain feels no pain. And monitor the results either directly or by asking the patient what he or she experienced. Sometimes such stimulation would produce visions, sometimes elicit memories, other times it produced movements or sensations. Penfield determined in this manner how the body was mapped onto the central nervous system, how it was incarnated, so to speak, in intrapsychic representation. He established, for example, that homunculi come in two forms, motor and sensory, the former associated with the primary zone of the motor unit, the latter associated with the primary zone of the sensory unit. The motor form, represented schematically in figure 10, the motor homunculus, is of most interest to us because our discussion centers on motor output. The motor homunculus is a very odd little creature. Its face, particularly mouth and tongue, and hands, particularly thumbs, are grossly disproportionate to the rest of its body. This is because comparatively large areas of the motor cortex are given over to control of the face and hands, which are capable of an immense number of complex and sophisticated operations. The motor homunculus is an interesting figure. It might be regarded as the body, insofar as the body has anything to do with the brain. It is useful to consider the structure of the homunculus because it is in some profound way representative of our essential nature as it finds expression in emotion and behavior. The most outstanding characteristic of the motor homunculus, for example, the hand with its opposable thumb, 
is the defining feature of the human being. The ability to manipulate and explore characteristics of objects, large and small, restricted as a general capacity to the highest primates, sets the stage for elicitation of an increased range of their properties for their utilization as tools. For more comprehensive transformation of their infinite potential into definable actuality. The hand, used additionally to duplicate the action and function of objects, also allows first for imitation and pointing, and then for full-blown linguistic representation. Used for written language, the hand additionally enables long-distance, temporal and spatial, transfer of its ability to another, and for the elaboration and extension of exploration during the process of writing, which is hand-mediated thinking. Even development of spoken language, the ultimate analytic motor skill, might reasonably be considered an abstract extension of the human ability to take things apart and reassemble them in an original manner. Interplay between hand and brain has literally enabled the individual to change the structure of the world. Consideration of the structure and function of the brain must take this primary fact into account. A dolphin or whale has a large, complex brain, a highly developed nervous system, but it cannot shape its world. It is trapped, so to speak, in its streamlined, test-tube-like form, specialized for oceanic life. It cannot directly alter the shape of its material environment in any complex manner. Its brain, therefore, is not likely prepared to perform any traditionally creative function. Indeed, as one would suspect, lacks the sophisticated structuring characteristic of primate brains. It is not just the hand, however, that makes the crucial human difference, although it is the most obvious and perhaps the most important single factor. It is more a style or melody of adaptation that characterizes the individual human being. This style is adaptation for exploration of the unknown within a social context. This adaptation is capacity for speech-mediated creation, elaboration, remembrance, description, and subsequent communication of new behavior patterns, and for representation of the frequently novel consequences of those patterns. The hand itself was rendered more useful by the development of vertical stance, which extended visual range and freed the upper body from the demands of locomotion. The fine musculature of the face, lips, and tongue, overrepresented once again in the motor homunculus, helped render subtle communication possible. Development of explicit language extended the power of such communication immensely. Increasingly detailed exchange of information enabled the resources of all to become the resources of each, and vice versa. That process of feedback greatly extended the reach and utility of the hand, providing every hand with the ability, at least in potential, of every other hand, extant currently or previously. Evolution of the restricted central field of the eye, which has input expanded 10,000 times in the primary visual area, 
and is additionally represented interhemispherically at several higher-order cortical sites, was of vital importance to development of visual language and enabled close observation, which made gathering of detailed information simpler. Combination of hand and eye enabled Homo sapiens to manipulate things in ways qualitatively different from those of any other animal. The individual can discover what things are like under various voluntarily produced or accidentally encountered, yet considered, conditions. Upside down, flying through the air, hit against other things, broken into pieces, heated in fire, and so on. The combination of hand and eye allowed human beings to experience and analyze the emergent nature of things. This ability, revolutionary as it was, was dramatically extended by application of hand-mediated, spoken, and written language. The human style of adaptation extends from the evidently physical to the more subtly psychological as well. The phenomenon of consciousness, for example, arguably the defining feature of man, appears related in some unknown fashion to breadth of cellular activation in the neocortex. Bodily features with large areas of cortical representation are also therefore more thoroughly represented in consciousness, at least in potential. This can be made immediately evident to subjective awareness merely by contrasting the capacity for control and monitoring of the hand, for example, with the much less represented expanse of the back. Consciousness also evidently expands or sharpens during the course of activities designed to enhance or increase adaptive competence during the course of creative exploration. Processing of novel or otherwise interesting sensory information associated with the orienting complex, heightened awareness, and focused concentration activates large areas of neocortex. Similarly, increased cortical mobilization takes place during the practice phase of skill acquisition, when awareness appears required for development of control. The area of such engagement or mobilization shrinks in size as movement becomes habitual and unconscious, or when sensory information loses interest or novelty. Finally, as we have noted before, Intrinsic pleasure of an intense nature appears to accompany activation of the cortical systems during psychomotor exploratory activity undertaken in the face of the unknown. The operation of these systems appears mediated in part by the neurotransmitter dopamine, involved in producing subjective and behavioral response to cues of reward in the form of hope, curiosity, and active approach. Human beings enjoy capacity for investigation, classification, and consequent communication, which is qualitatively different from that characterizing any other animal. The material structure of Homo sapiens is ideal for exploration and for the dissemination of the results thereof. Spiritually, psychologically, man is characterized by the innate capacity to take true pleasure in such activity. Our physical attributes... The abilities of the hand, in combination with the other physiological specializations of man, define who we are and enable us to endlessly elicit new properties from previously stable and predictable elements of experience. The object, any object, serves us as a source of limitless possibility, or at least 
possibility limited only by the capacity for exploratory genius exhibited at any particular moment. Simple animals perform simple operations and inhabit a world whose properties are equally constrained, a world where most information remains latent. Human beings can manipulate, take apart and put together with far more facility than any other creature. Furthermore, our capacity for communication, both verbal and nonverbal, has meant almost unbelievable facilitation.